1: I told you this was a romance novel, and so far, all I've given you is mean ants, dying children, and stabbings. You've been very patient with me. But finally, everyone, we have arrived to chapter 23, and with it, to the romance part that I promised. Rochester proposes, Jane says yes. And listen to some of these lines that Rochester lays on us. Be my best earthly companion. Make my happiness and I will make yours. Give me my name. Your will shall decide your destiny. Swoon. Of course, he has to be weird before the actual proposal. Adele has gone to bed on the early side. Plus, it's summer in northern England, so it stays light out late. Jane goes for a walk in the garden because it's gorgeous out. She smells Rochester's cigar and she tries to leave without being detected, but he notices her and starts talking to her as if they're already in the middle of a conversation. He does some last chance tap dance of manipulation. He tells Jane, I'm going to marry Blanche Ingram, but don't worry. I'm totally going to find you a job taking care of five kids in Ireland. You'll be fine. And what's different this time from every other time he's manipulated her is that Jane resists All the fucking way. She loses it. She yells at him. She tells him it pains her to be torn from him and that he is treating her horribly. Do you think that because I am plain poor and little that I am soulless and heartless? Rochester goes to her. Her outburst of self-proclamation is all of the permission he needs. He tells her that she needs to calm down, that she's acting like a bird ensnared in a net. Then the most famous line of the novel comes. Jane says, I am no bird and no net ensnares me. I am a free human being with an independent will, which I now exert to leave you. And Rochester jumps on his caught prey that insists it isn't caught. He proposes. She doesn't believe him. He convinces her and professes his love. She says yes. He only makes one minor strange speech during this. Jane excuses it. She's just too happy to think it too strange. It starts to storm, so they head into the house, making out on their way up the stairs. Mrs. Fairfax catches them, and Jane can't even care. She's too happy. In the morning, she finds out that the chestnut tree they were standing under was split in half in the storm. We move on swiftly to chapter 24. Jane and Rochester find each other in the morning and are delighted at the sight of each other. Rochester wants to immediately start acting like husband and wife, but again, Jane resists. She also has some questions. Didn't he hurt Blanche Ingram by leading her on? And can he please tell Mrs. Fairfax that they are engaged and so they weren't doing anything wrong by making out when she caught them last night? He says that no, he didn't hurt Blanche, and yes, he'll talk to Mrs. Fairfax. He also tells her that he wants to take her shopping in town. While she's getting ready, he tells Mrs. Fairfax, and then Jane goes to see her. Mrs. Fairfax is not the joyous support that Jane was hoping for. She's worried for Jane. Isn't Jane being naive? She warns Jane to keep a little distant from Rochester and to be careful. Jane is so hurt by this moment, she begins to cry. Adele joins Rochester and Jane on their shopping expedition. There is a hilarious carriage ride scene in which Rochester is telling Adele that he is going to take Jane to the moon and take care of her and make dresses of clouds for her But with just a few months under Jane's tutelage, our whimsical little French student is having none of it. What will she eat? Won't she get cold? Why would she want to be stuck with you alone on the moon? The shopping trip is stressful for Jane. Rochester wants to buy her things that make her uncomfortable. She rejects jewels and too expensive of material for her dresses. In fact, she continues to resist Rochester. He wants to tell her that she's an angel and hold her and fall headfirst into this new phase of life. But Jane refuses. She's taken Mrs. Fairfax's warning to heart. She will keep him at a distance, at least outwardly. Inwardly, she admits to us, my future husband was becoming my whole world to me. I could not in those days see God for his creature of whom I'd made an idol. Here's Deborah Letts, professor at the University of Louisville and author of The Bronte Cabinet, Three Lives in Nine Objects, on Jane's Worshipping of Rochester. Charlotte was really into the whole master-servant uh, thing. You know, her first novel, which was not published until after she died, which was called The Professor, of course, was originally called The Master. And so, you know, so she, clearly this idea of the master for her was very erotic and exciting and passionate and my feeling I mean this is of course reading into a a historical person we don't really know this but my my reading my speculation about Charlotte is that that was eroticism for her and sexuality and involved looking up to a man who was uh, powerful and had power over her and wielded power over her right so I think for her the fact that he was her professor The man that she fell in love with um, was her professor that was key for her. But the great thing about Rochester is that he worships her, too. He thinks she can survive on the moon. He thinks she's an angel. And they are both going to resist these impressions all the way. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Lauren Sandler. And this is On Air from Hot and Bothered.
2: Okay, Lauren, teach us things, please. (laughs) All right, so this is something I keep thinking about, is about how even if Mrs. Fairfax did not know about the mystery on the third floor, how even if Rochester just seemed to be the simplest, most ideal mate, why she could possibly be scandalized at the news of their engagement? I know we've already talked about marriage a lot on this podcast, but it's really significant. It is the main structure, the main economic institution. It is what rules not just the marriage plots of this era, but women's lives of this era. So here's some information. Jane, we know, is 18. Until 20 years before Bronte sat down and wrote this book, it was illegal to get married at 18. It was too young in the eyes of the law. Under the age of 21, you could not get married, not just to someone 25 years older than you, like Rochester, but you couldn't get married at all. Furthermore, these two running off to get married within four weeks, which is Rochester's plan, also unheard of. Engagements would last from six months to two years. And that was to protect women. That was because you know, all of the financial assessments and meetings and communications needed to be completed. People had to trot out records and bank statements and meet each other's relatives and make sure that everything was absolutely ship because once this happened, this was for real. Over the age of 21, a woman could own property and money, but as soon as she married, every cent, every stick of furniture, you name it, would go to her husband in perpetuity. It would go into his will. If he died, whatever she owned could go to his illegitimate children. She would have no claim on anything the day she said, I do. And that's within the higher class. Cross-class marriages, absolutely unheard of. If a bride had no dowry at all, there was no way that she was going to marry someone with money. And that was to the extent that, you know, it was accepted to marry your first cousin, but it was unaccepted to marry outside of your class. And so there's just reason after reason here why this love feels so forbidden to Mrs. Fairfax, and certainly would to any reader of this book.
1: Yeah. And this goes back to something that you taught us a couple of weeks ago in Professor Corner, right? Which is that the mother spent a specific amount of energy and had a specific role as chaperone. And that that role was to protect the daughter, right? To protect her from ruination by getting pregnant early, to protect her from being raped, right? Like just as her protector. And Jane doesn't have this person. I feel like Mrs. Fairfax in this moment is quite beautifully attempting to carefully step into that role and saying, right? Like, I'm not your mom. I thought you were wise enough to not (laughs) make this mistake. And so let me warn you now, like I have to try to do what I can now and don't make out with him in the hallway. Servants gossip and like, don't fall too head over heels and don't get pregnant because he might not marry you, right? Like that's all in the subtext of what she's saying to Jane.
2: And furthermore, that making out in the hallway, that is a big deal in this era. Even once people are engaged, it may be that, you know, the dowager allows them to take a walk alone, but they hold hands. They're not making out. And for Mrs. Fairfax to walk in on them like sucking face all over the house, like that is truly the equivalent of walking in on the governess and her boss in bed together.
1: Yeah, they're running around laughing, kissing, you know, knocking on doors. I understand why Mrs. Fairfax sees it as reckless behavior.
2: And yet there's this part of me that wants Jane not to say, I will continue to work as your governess until the day we wed. I want Jane to say, okay, we've already been through this. I love you, you love me, let's get it on. But I think that this is where she has power. And I think she feels like it is important for her to maintain her power until she has honorably passed into a different place of power as Mrs. Jane Rochester. That said, I want her to let him in.
1: Oh, I completely agree with her. If she hands over this power to him now, then he can kick her out and there's no contract between them. Whereas right now, he would have to pay her severance for her work for these couple of weeks. And right, like she just has an official role in the House. I think that this is so smart. She's not willing to hand over her independence to him until he will legally be responsible for her. And therefore, she will be safe under that.
2: Though, you know, I do wonder if that presumes erroneously that he would respect her independence as an employee. We've already seen how he withholds wages and then how he just shoves money at her, how he blocks her passage, how he makes unreasonable demands on her. I think that she might be hoping that there are parameters that he has no need for and that he doesn't honor at all and i think that that we also see that in his process of falling in love with her and of even proposing to her that you know it's a bait and switch around her employment it's this form of manipulation which is all about her as his worker and his dependent and as much as the latter half of the proposal scene is one that just like you know gets my heart all aflutter the initial half of it is something that stokes my ire and makes me feel like oh my god how how is this the man that this young woman deserves someone who can literally clearly come up with some absurd name and has her imagine you know laboring for five children somewhere across the sea where she knows no one and that he's just going to trot her off there. That is literally his language. She's going to have to trot off once Blanche appears and this is what he has secured for her. And it's, it's so cruel, not just from a lover's perspective, but from an employment perspective.
1: Yeah, this is the last manipulation that even upon reading it for the first time, I still have my edition that I was given for my 14th birthday and I wrote in the margins, why is he still up to this. It seems a bridge too far to me. And I don't know why the text has him do this one last turn. Right. Or he's like, yes, my bride, Blanche, my bride. I'm like, this is officially strange behavior. They've just had this this marvelous two weeks of being around each other and enjoying each other's company. And he says some lovely things, right? He says, you know, he's going to miss her, that he somehow feels like there's a cord of communion between the two of them. And if she goes too far, it'll be snapped and he'll take to bleeding inwardly, right? So he says, like, I will die a slow death if you and I are too far away from each other. But, like, in the midst of all of this Blanche talk, And I don't know if he's doing it because he's like tired of waiting for her. And so he's like, I'm just going to push you cruelly. But he is somehow very committed to her being the one who breaks down and admits that she has feelings. Right. It's almost like a game of chicken. And he's like, I'm going to speed up so that you have to swerve.
2: I mean, I think he's very intentionally breaking her. I think that right before he does break her, she's trying to steal away from his sight so that he doesn't even spot her in the garden. She's so guarded around him, even though she's happy to be in his presence. And it's got to be to the point of absolute exile and disrespect and full on gaslighting, like not just gaslighting around I'm getting married or you're going to move to Ireland, but gaslighting as in the performance of I'm going to pretend that there is nothing between us. And that's the thing that she, in the end, she can't abide.
1: I do love that it is Her standing up for herself and declaring who she is and what she deserves that gets the proposal out of him, right? She doesn't fall to her knees and say, I love you and I don't ever want to lose you. I will do anything to keep you, please. What she says is you are treating me like I am nothing and I am not nothing. I am just as good as you, right? I have full as much heart as you. God sees us the same. It is absolutely a position of strength and he fucking loves that about her
2: so in thinking about a close reading in this chapter i mean you know there are just like two solid pages of rightfully famous words strung together about what it means to be female what it means to be poor, what it means to be underrepresented, undervalued, underrespected, and still have an inner life, have desire, have agency, have force, and have power. And Bronte lays out that fact in a way which is so new in literature in many regards, and so impassioned It's everything that we want Red Room Jane to grow up to say, and here it is, and there's a reason it's on t-shirts and tote bags. It's worth just taking a moment to genuflect and to say that I think the beating heart of so, so much that is good in literature about women's passion is here, and not just sexual passion, but just passion and voice for life. I want to move on to a different discussion, though, which is about a different type of passion. And it's one, Vanessa, that I know you have flagged as something that is is worth spending some time on. I wonder if you wanted to read it for us.
1: Yeah. Jane, as you said, right, like asserts this independence, right? She does her... I've spoken my mind and can go anywhere now. And Rochester, he tells her, right, I love you as my own flesh. I mean, it's just this great stuff. And then he's holding her, right? She has said yes. And he says sort of to no one, it will atone. It will atone. Have I not found her friendless and cold and comfortless? Will I not guard and cherish and solace her? Is there not love in my heart and constancy in my resolves? It will expiate at God's tribunal. I know my make our sanctions, what I do for the world's judgment. I wash my hands thereof for man's opinion. I defy it. Right? Like this is his thesis statement. This is Rochester saying man's law is messed up. Society's opinions are completely perverted. God would want me to love this woman who has nothing and who I naturally have an affinity for, who I will guard and cherish for the rest of my life. Like this is what Jesus would want me to do, right? And the only way that I can do it is by marrying her. And so fuck man's law and fuck man's opinion. I know what I'm doing is right. And I'm compelled by it, right? I mean, it takes, an incredible amount of arrogance to say, I know God's will, (laughs) right? Like God give me the, the confidence of this mediocre white man. But I do think that he is in conversation with these ideas of what God would want us to do. And, you know, Augustine would say, if the lesson you're taking is you know, that God is love and it's making you more loving than you're doing it right. And it's making him more loving. He's like doing a great job. We're going to meet a character later, a man later, who's also going to profess to know God's will. And he is going to be attempting to sublimate and extinguish people. And Rochester is saying, I'm going to cherish and hold you.
2: Well, I think your nod to Augustine is right on. And very much where I sort of landed, adjacent to this is the larger question of what is God? What is God to Jane? You know, she doesn't have any respect for the Reed daughter going off to the nunnery. She's struggled with Helen Burns's embrace of a deep faith in death. Like we've seen all of these different types of religion. And I don't just mean like the sort of Lowood corrupt religion, but even more... You know, popularly honorable forms of faith, and she has rejected them. And yet she is so clearly driven by something. And so is Rochester. I mean, Rochester is not a man we see trotting off to church every week, but he is conjuring some notion of God here. And I do think that. For the two of them, part of the faith that they do share is in this belief that God is love and not just that God is love in a charitable sense, but that romantic love is a form of spirituality that has something transcendent association that is so related to something far beyond what they can conjure as humans. And it's part of why I thrill to this so much. There's even this moment he asks her to marry him and then he instantly says, do you doubt me, Jane? And her response is entirely. He says, you have no faith in me? She says, not a whit." It is like the ballsiest, most badass, sexiest response to a marriage proposal that I can possibly imagine. But within it is I think this suggestion that it's not even faith in Rochester himself that she has. It is faith in the love that he shows her. It is faith in the love that she feels. That is the only thing that she has faith in.
1: And she stays the course on that when he's like, I'm going to love you forever. She's like, no, you're not. Right. Like you're not going to feel this passion forever. I've read novels by men and they tend to feel like not passionate about their wives after six months, but she just believes that they are going to stay connected. Right. She's like, I'm going to be happy if you still like me, if you still respect me and that this love between us, right. This transcendent thing between us stays true regardless of whether or not the romantic element of that stays true. You know, mm my idea of treating Jane Eyre as sacred happened while I was listening to a sermon on the Song of Songs. And the line that got me to think about this exact scene was from one of the Psalms that says love is stronger than death. And I was like, oh, that's like something that Rochester would say to Jane in his proposal scene, right? There are just like all of these theses, you know, Jane says our spirits are talking to one another, right? She believes That through language, they can strip down to something essential about themselves and that those spirits are who they actually are, right? This is as much as it's a romantic conversation, it's a theological conversation of what two people are capable of doing with one another if they truly love each other.
2: I mean, I am someone who has experienced the fever of love as the closest thing to high spirituality I've ever known in my life, and I believe in that. I also believe that this is an older man falling in love with a very, very young woman and doting on her youth fetishizing her youth and, frankly, doing what men have done since the dawn of time, which is that experience of, I need to feel, I need to be desired, I need my virility validated, I I need to feel the truth of myself, and I can only do that with an 18-year-old. And I have no doubt that this is something true, that Rochester is feeling and something true that Jane is feeling, and yet it is part of the ego-driven, self-referential pattern of male behavior that goes back to time immemortal. And I'm sure that Mrs. Fairfax is seeing that. I imagine that almost anyone else would be, which doesn't mean that they shouldn't have this thing that makes them feel this. I just think it's really important to think of it in the context of male desire and what we can get caught up in. I mean, this is one of these moments for me that feels like, okay, is this a story I want to pass along in this way? I say this having arrived at the age of 47 and feeling, you know, my own ability to be desired, to be seen, to be recognized, to be made to feel what Rochester wants to make Jane feel is something that decays and erodes with you know every turn around the sun. Even though I remain my youthful self inside in the same way that fucking Edward Rochester does. And so I struggle with this mightily as much as I want it. And that is because I do want it. I want it at 47 as much as I want it at 18. But we live in a world and we can talk about this world in biological terms or cultural terms, you name it, in which it is Rochester and Jane and never the other way around.
1: Lauren, I just think that the text knows all of that, right? Mrs. Fairfax says he's old enough to be your father, and Rochester's constantly calling her my child bride, and Jane really resists it. Jane compels Rochester one night to sing to her and he chooses this song that talks about two lovers dying together. And at the end, he looks at her like, aren't you so proud? I just sang you this really beautiful romantic song. And she's like, I hated that. I'm not dying with you. You're 20 years older than I am. I have just as much of a right to die when I'm supposed to die as you do. And the cycle of life would say that that's 20 years after you. And so I think that the text knows that difference between them. It It isn't saying, look, this is just the way of things. Middle-aged men love younger women and that's fine. The text is like, no, this is inappropriate and problematic. And I think what we're supposed to think about that is that that's how you know that this is true love. This isn't the meeting of two minds where they were raised exactly the same. They're of the same social class. Of course they click. This is love across time and class, and it is love conquering all of those things. And that actually, even though he has the money and he has the age and the power, she has all of this power over him where she can say, no, you're not going to touch me. You're not going to kiss me. Do not say those nice things to me. Do not buy me things. Like, I think that it's an attempt to show the depth of their connection. But yeah, it's using the depth of their connection while also reifying this idea that older men just want younger women and need younger women in order to stay aroused.
2: But I think you're right that Bronte isn't letting a man like Rochester off the hook about that, right? I mean, it it has puzzled me why we have him leaning in so hard to call her, you know, a fairy, an elf, a sprite, a puppet, his child, bride, little, a girl, all these things constantly. I mean, I feel like we could count them in this chapter, references to her tiny doll-like sprightness, and we would probably, I don't know, have like 20 of them just on these pages alone. But perhaps that's Bronte saying, yeah, that's right. That's what these guys are like. That's this dude. And guess what? She loves him. And I wonder if there is the part of me that, you know, rages at that, that also needs to give our author some credit for lambasting him while she's not rejecting the desire wholesale.
1: So Lauren, I wanna take us to the next chapter and talk about another power dynamic here. And I'm really of two minds about this. So Rochester tells us he has jewels in a safety deposit box in London, and he's gonna send for them so that Jane can be bedecked in all of the Rochester jewels. And he says, right, I'm gonna clasp the diamonds across your throat or something. I mean, it sounds like a collar. And she is like, no, you're not. I do not want your jewels. And one of the things she says is like, I would look ridiculous in that. And part of me is like, yes, you're entitled to all the jewels and damn right he's going to offer them all to you. Like that's what you get if you're a Rochester wife. And the other part of me loves that she's like, absolutely not, you're not going to dress me like a doll. And is like, what the heck are you doing, Rochester? Do you know her at all, right? Adele knows Jane better in this chapter. Adele is like, she would hate to be dressed like that. It's actually this like very simple pearl that she would like. So I'm wondering what you make of of this dynamic?
2: I think it's a really interesting discourse on passing, actually. I think that as much as Rochester claims to revere her as she is, he does want her to be a class that she is not. He wants her to represent a place that she is not from and wants the sort of ease of having that that sort of woman in his life. And obviously he's been acculturated to believe that this is what women want, but there's nothing about Jane that suggests that she has any interest in any of that or any respect for any of that. So I think that he very much wants to costume her in the trappings of his society. And I think that she is defiant saying, I am not going to pass. This is who I am. This is the person who you love. I'm going to wear Black and brown. I have Quakerish style. This has nothing to do with me, and I will not perform it for you. And I think that there is that there's power in that. And I do I do love that Adele is this girl who who loves these things more than anything. I mean, she just like genuflex at like the altar of frippery and here Jane is being offered all the frippery in the world and her response is like, "No, this is not the person that we love. Let's give her what she wants, not what you want and not what I would want." And I love that. I also think that Jane
1: is embarrassed, right? In a way that I remember, I remember trying on makeup a few times in high school. And every time I did, someone would comment on like the change, right? They'd be like, oh, you look nice. You're wearing makeup. And I was like, ah, I didn't like the acknowledgement that I was trying. There was something embarrassing to me about that. I think part of what Jane is saying here is like, I won't be able to pull it off. And that she would find that, embarrassing. And also she wants to prove to Rochester that she loves him not for the jewels, right? She's like, that is Miss Ingram. Miss Ingram would love you for the jewels. And I need to prove to you that that's not what this is about. And so I don't know. I think that because to your point earlier, these cross-class marriages, there's beyond no script for them. They're trying to figure out how to negotiate these things. And I certainly think his offering the jewels to her is better than him not offering the jewels to her saying, well, you come from a lower class background, so you don't need these, right? He's saying this is everything that comes with being a bride. You also get that.
2: I love that he offers it. I also want him to listen when she denies it. Yes, I want him to shower her with everything. And the moment that she says, you don't even know who I am right now, I don't want him to get aggressive about it. I want him to say, you're right. You are the woman I love and I will be proud to stand by you in your boring, plain gray dress and it will still thrill me. I mean, I would take the jewels. (laughs) I'm like a grown up Adele, though, so I'm not the best example of this. But, you know, but speaking of Adele, Jane is very, very clear in saying, I am not Celine Varenne. Like this has nothing to do with me. This is the world that you may come from and it is part of your past that may be hard to release. But I am here to tell you this has nothing to do with our present or future.
1: But it's also her fear, right? She's like, I have heard you tell stories about giving women nice things and then resenting them for giving them the nice things and that they weren't prostrate enough at your feet to after and that and she's like you can't buy me right and so I think that this is one of the ways that he shows love he got Celine presents he's got given Adele presents and she's like no you don't respect the people who accept your gifts and so I again just think she's being prudent she is acknowledging all of his power and is saying I have to play this really carefully because you could turn on me you could fire me you could resent me and so she's just just being really cautious in a way that I really respect
2: sure i mean what happened with Celine was not just right. that they separated but that Celine was indigent because he was her financial security and he cut her off you know and Jane is so aware that through this treatment of of her as a bride with these jewels there's a bargain that she doesn't want to participate in right i love this turn of phrase where she says the more he bought me the more my cheek burned with a sense of annoyance and degradation i love how you can read that two ways it can be like the more that he purchased for me or more or the more that he purchased me the more he bought me and you really get this sense that she is feeling entrapped here as though she's just another jewel. And he even tells her this. I mean, he, he flags it as something that he's saying, figuratively speaking, but I mean, come on. He says, I'll attach you to a chain like this touching his watch guard. And then he quotes Robert Burns. Yes, Bonnie wee thing, I'll wear you in my bosom, lest my jewel I should tine." I mean, the notion that he is trying to attach her like a jewel to his waistcoat just feels like so much of what we've already been led to think about marriage, right? that it's something from which a person cannot escape, that there's something inherently corrupt about it, that there's nothing here to deify or honor in the way that the culture has exalted marriage. I mean, we have seen Jane throughout, say, to Rochester's face and to other people's faces, like, this is the worst way that a story can end is in marriage, and here it is. And you don't get the feel that she's, like, thrilling to be his bonnie wee wife, but that this is what what one does when one wants to love, when one wants to express and cohabitate and feel pleasure. One must marry, and so she will, but all of the entrapments around it feel like nothing but entrapment.
1: And that's part of the horror of it, right? That's why this version of their relationship is not going to survive. The last paragraph of this chapter is her sort of whispering to us, my future husband was becoming to me my whole world, more than the world, my hope of heaven. Right? This idol worship, this you will be a jewel at my heart, right? Like they are they are objectifying each other, right? Like in completely understandable ways, but not in sustainable ways.
2: And of course, like, this is where the horror movie score comes in, right? (laughs) I mean, idols are not good things to worship.
1: Okay, Lauren, chapters 25 and 26. We're going to go to the third floor again. What are you looking forward to?
2: Do we have to? Can't we just spend a little bit less time on the third floor right now? I need to stay in the garden. (laughs) I'd rather go shopping, to be perfectly honest with you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You want to go to milk it in the nice new carriage? I'm so excited for the people listening for whom this moment is not spoiled. It is one of the great literary twists that's coming up. So I hope you enjoy it.
2: I'm having an anxiety response just thinking about it. So dear listeners, as you well know, Jane continuing to call Rochester master is sort of driving me crazy. And I need to check in with someone who can help me understand this element of master slave language on top of the discussions we've already had around the context of enslaved people and their allies and emancipation in the British colonies. And I thought that a really interesting person to talk to would be Julia Lee, who's an English professor at Loyola Marymount University, where she teaches courses in African-American literature. She wrote a book called The American Slave Narrative and the Victorian Novel, which none other than Jamaica Kincaid called brilliant. Let's call her up. Hi, Julia.
1: Hi.
0: How are you?
2: I'm great. Thank you for joining us. I'm so excited to talk to you about this because it's just been really, it's been driving me crazy that Jane continues to refer to now her betrothed as master. She calls him master. She tells us that he is her master. Can you help us contextualize this, how how we can understand this element of the master-slave language dynamic at this point of the story?
0: Absolutely. I think that Jane and Charlotte Bronte as well is really picking up on the language of subordination and subjugation, especially women in relationship to men, wives in relationship to husbands. And so much of the language at that time was around transatlantic slavery. And so I think for a lot of women, they saw similarities in their plights with that of enslaved people, even though obviously their lives are very different and presumably white British women would have a lot more privilege. But at the same time, I think there is this idea of, you know, women at that time not having, losing basically all their rights when they became engaged, when they got married. Um, And especially when they got married, they basically ceased to be individuals. So I think you're hearing a lot of that in her discussion of Rochester as her master, even though she's very, very ambivalent about it. She resists when he keeps talking about how she's his little plaything or how... She is somebody that he will take care of and is this almost pet.
2: Do you think that the Victorian reader would have sort of slaveholding connotations of the word master? Or is, is this something that I'm projecting onto it? Would master at the time have actually represented master of the house in a non-slaveholding sort of way?
0: I think that there can't help but have been overtones. I mean, yes. Bronte and Jane Eyre are using it in terms of master of the house. But there was so much talk about mastery and slavery and what that relationship was like, you know, especially, I mean, it was often governessing, for example, was often described as, quote unquote, governessing slavery. And so in that context, the master of the house was in some ways the master to your enslaved person. I think this language was everywhere. And because the, the slave trade and abolition were huge issues, huge contemporary issues at the time, you couldn't avoid those resonances.
2: I had no idea that governessing slavery was something that anyone had said other than Rochester, because there's this moment in this chapter in which she says, I'm going to keep working. And he said, you will not be a governess slave. And I thought, oh, wow, well, he's really playing it up here. I also thought, well, she kind of is if you keep withholding her wages, Rochester. But actually, that was, that was a trope. That was a turn of phrase from the era. Will you tell us about that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think there were a lot of articles, sort of pieces written about how governesses, tutors, those who occupied this strange place in the household where they were not quite servants and yet were absolutely not part of that same class and in some ways were part of them but not part of them, that this created a ripe situation for exploitation, for withheld wages, certainly for abuse some governesses would, in fact, quote unquote, run away. You saw this as well with factory workers at the time. We have all this talk about transatlantic slavery, and then you have English people saying, well, look at the poor, the working poor in our own country, these people, these white British factory operatives who are working, you know, spinning fabric, spinning cloth. And have terrible working conditions and are losing limbs in the looms and don't have enough to eat and are suffering um, you know low wages. How can we protest about injustice across the Atlantic Ocean in America when we have our own issues right here. The factory owners are getting fat and rich and they are the masters in this case and then meanwhile the operatives are the enslaved people.
2: I just have to ask. So you have a book which is coming out in in the next couple of years, a memoir, which I'm really excited about, about growing up Asian in black and white America. And I am curious if you explore your relationship with this book or similar books as you reflect upon your own identity and what has formed you.
0: I'm so happy you asked this question because this is something, you know, I'm putting the final revisions on my book. And one of the central stories that I tell is about when I first read Jane Eyre. I was in eighth grade and it was a year in which we were all supposed to read coming of age novels. I went to an all girls school. And so it was all about, you know, little girls turning into young women and what are the challenges. And so I read the novel and I thought it was awesome. And then we were told to write our own autobiographical essays to talk about our challenges, our feelings, how we, you know, wanted to speak truth to power, whatever. And it was fascinating because I wrote one essay, which I got a really good grade on. And then I wrote a second essay that I got a really crappy grade on. The first essay I talked about, you know, being raised Korean American and feeling very constrained by the model minority myth and Korean culture being oppressive and just wanting to assimilate into American culture. And my teacher, who was white, thought it was awesome, gave me an A, said she wanted to show it to the school head, head mistress or head of school to show the assimilation struggles of young Korean American girls. So after that, I felt all, you know, charged up, all excited. And so I wrote a second autobiographical essay where I basically ranted about the racist and classist structure of my school because it was a very, you know, bougie, fancy all-girls school that was predominantly white, predominantly very wealthy, old money, quote unquote, for Los Angeles. And I felt so out of place and so unhappy and so angry about what I saw was the overt favoritism of some of these girls. And let me tell you, I did not get a good grade on that essay. So I was basically being disciplined and told, you know, raging against your oppressive culture at home and your parents is a-okay, like we like that. But raging against injustice and privilege here, that goes too far and we are not going to tolerate that. And I remember in reflecting on this, I'm just thinking, wow, why is it okay to be basically an angry little English girl, right? Like, we elevate her to being this heroine. And yet, like, an angry little Asian girl is not okay. Like, that is too much. And I just think about it all the time because there is a reason why Jane Eyre appeals to so many of us who might feel marginalized or might feel like we're not being listened to or heard you know, when Jane Eyre first came out, there were a lot of, you know, nice Christian ladies who thought it was a terrible novel because they thought she was too sassy and too obnoxious and too unchristian. And in the intervening hundred plus years now, we're like, no, she's great. She's a feminist. But apparently it's only okay to be that kind of feminist if you're a white feminist. I mean, like, why is this not something that those of us who are not English and not white can't also aspire to?
2: I'm imagining a world in which you and Jane and I all got to be at high school together. (laughs) It would have been good trouble. (laughs) We would
0: have gotten kicked out.
2: (laughs) Um, Well, Julia, it was wonderful talking to you. I so appreciate this conversation. It's been such a treat and I can't wait for your book.
1: Thank you. You've been listening to On Air, we're a small show, so we need your support to run. If you can, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hot and bothered ROM Pod. If you love the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman, our associate producer is Molly Baxter, and we are distributed by ACAST. We'd like to offer a special thanks this week to Deborah Lutz and Julia Lee for talking to us, Julia Argy, Lara Glass, Nikki Zoltan, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of our patrons. We'll talk to you next week.